Hey everybody, it's your host, Maddie C. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome back to another episode of the What Am I Making podcast. T- today's a departure. We're going to try something new today. I'm really excited to tell you all about it, but I'm also, frankly, kind of nervous. So, bear with me. This may not be like a usual episode, but I think it's going to be fun. Maddie C. Welcome back to another episode of the What Am I Making podcast. As you probably are aware, uh, what we do here is we have conversations. We, we talk about what we're making. We talk about what we're doing. We talk about what's important to us, what shaped us, what made us. Why are we the way we are? Today, we're not going to have a conversation. No, seriously, we're, we're not, <laughs> we're not going to have. It's not going to be me and another person. It's just going to be me. And uh, before you hang up or uh, throw your phone out the window or unsubscribe or whatever, follow me here. One of, the, one of the things I said that I wanted to do when I first started to this, started to this, when I first started this, one of the things I said I wanted to do was I wanted to find different ways for me to explore my mental health, my own personal history, my attachment to culture, the way that it shaped me, and to use that to sort of have conversations with other people who are also making stuff and also struggling with many of those very same things. And uh, one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to take one of the pieces that I had done for the blog, the Substack, whatamimaking.substack.com, for those of you listening out there. I wanted to take what I'm doing over at the Substack, what I am making, if you will, I wanted to take that, and I wanted to find a way to maybe deliver it in a different format. So I'd written this really, really long piece called Next Stop Adulthood. In full disclosure, I never have a lot of confidence uh, about my headlines, but the reality is they need a headline, and whether they're good or not, they got to have one. And so but this may be hokey. I I don't know. That's a whole different level of self-doubt that you probably don't want to know about. But anyway— Long story short, I wrote I wrote this long piece called called Next Stop Adulthood that was based on a an earlier version, a shorter version of this same story that I had written ten or so years ago, and it's about a very true story that I tell in um, pretty specific detail uh, about what happened to me one summer when I took the bus to go up north and stay with my granddad when I was fourteen years old, and um. I knew I knew when I wrote it 10 years ago that it was a foundational experience. I knew that it had had a big impact on me in the last 10 years in doing a lot of therapy work, in doing some discovery about my own sort of reaction to moments of stress or anxiety and the way that I have sort of funneled those in terms of the way my body works chemically, but also in the, the sort of habits and the patterns and the choices that I've made over a lifetime. You know, a lot of them were formed through a handful of really formative experiences this is one of them um th- this was truly traumatic 
Um, and I don't mean that in the sense of like, I'll never recover from it. I mean it in the sense that it, it traumatized me. It, it changed me. Um, I, I try to cover that and I try to talk about that in the piece. And there was, there was nothing about this trauma that was intentional from anyone, but it was trauma nonetheless. And it has to be reckoned with. And that doesn't mean you have to sit through it, but it means that if you, if you looked at that really long piece about this kind of dark story from my childhood, my adolescence, if you will, if you looked at that and went, I don't know if I want to spend a half an hour reading about that, Matt. Well, you know what? You're in luck because you're going to spend a half an hour listening about it, friend. Well, maybe not. Maybe you're going to maybe you can turn it off. But, but the idea was that maybe there are going to be some people out there who would be touched by this, who would be moved by this, who might have a similar world experience, something that they can relate to. But they didn't read that piece. Or maybe they find this podcast before they ever find the substack. And this is how they hear that story. And this is how it connects with them. And maybe it's just a way for me to learn how to tell some of these stories that I think are worth sharing in a different way. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's practice. Um, I will say that I, I tried to record the narration for this two or three different times, and I wound up just going with the first go. Um, this was never written with the intention of being read. I know that sounds weird, but it, it wasn't written like a piece for this American life. It was written like I would write. And while that doesn't mean you can't uh, turn that into an audio story or a podcast, it, it does mean that it, it changes the delivery. And there are things about this that I would do differently if I had known when I wrote the piece that it was going to be recorded for audio, or I at least would have prepped it a little differently in terms of the way that I broke it up to record it. That said, I'm really proud of what's here. When I first came up with this idea, I reached out to my friend and also podcast guest, uh, Dr. Barry Hummel of the Pops on Hops pod. And I asked Barry if this was A, a worthwhile endeavor, and B, if he would listen to the the narration that I did. And he not only listened to it, but he also took that and he added a little sound design to it. And I had said I was trying to find a way to do this and I wasn't sure what direction I wanted to take. And Barry kind of added some some little stuff, which you will hear. And and again, I think if we had known we were going to do this ahead of time, we would have built it differently. We would have done it differently. But instead of trying to sort of tweak this and turn it into something that Quite frankly, it isn't. I think it's going to be more effective in terms of this project and in the way that I present myself and what I do to you in a transparent way. I really think it's better if I just say, hey, I know there are some things about this that I learned that I will do differently next time. That doesn't mean this isn't worth sharing and that it isn't good. It just means I would do it differently or maybe better given another opportunity. And that I'm trying to see that not as a failing of what I haven't accomplished, but as a sign of growth. And so now that you've delved a full seven and a half minutes into the Maddie C podcast therapy hour, thanks for being here. Have you checked out the Substack? It's whatamimaking.substack.com. You can get all of the episodes of this podcast. You can also get a whole bunch of written stuff that I've done as well as a, uh, a whole series of songs that I have recorded for a project called uh, 
mixtape for a future self. You can also get those all over at my Bandcamp page. That's harborcoat.bandcamp.com. And uh, I don't know if you know or not, but if you've just joined the party, uh, it's really helpful if you can subscribe to this pod in whatever podcast feed you use, whether that's Spotify or Apple Music or Stitcher or another feed. Um, It's also really helpful if you could rate it and review. I know it's uh, stupid stuff, and I know it's uh, really like, uh, hey, uh, thanks for subscribing, guys. Hit that bell and don't miss anything. It's a real douchey YouTube presentation thing that I'm not comfortable with, but I still have to ask for help, and this is how we do it. So ratings and reviews and subscriptions all within the pod feeds really help. Even if you're listening to this in your email, it's really helpful if you can go out and make it look like you are listening on those pod servers because it makes us show up in more feeds as recommendations for future listeners. The next thing you could do to help if you're really into it is you could share what we're doing here, whether that's written or visual or audio or a video, hopefully soon. I promise I am working on that. There are so many things happening, which I will get into soon. Oh my God, there's so much going on. Uh, and last but not least, uh, this whole thing, this whole uh, HMS Maddie C., uh, runs on your donations, your funds, your generosity, and your contributions. Um, if you have not subscribed at all to what I am doing over at whatamimaking.substack.com, please do so. Go over and subscribe. Get a free subscription. Check it out. See if you like it. See if it's for you. If it provides some value for your life, or if you've been using it for a while, and you'd like to support with a paid subscription, that would be enormously helpful. It's a huge, huge help. It's the only way that I can keep doing this work. So thanks for your support. Thanks for your help and your encouragement. All of your shares, all your comments, all your feedback, it's heard, it is seen, it is remembered and appreciated. And uh, please don't think that there is a moment that I take any of what any of you are doing to help and support me in this crazy new endeavor for granted. Last but not least... I have a big run of house concerts coming this summer, the first two weeks of July. I'm going to be out on the road in the eastern half of the U.S. You can go to phonoforrecords.com slash house shows, or you can find an article that I posted at whatamimaking.substack.com. Excuse me. You can also find my bands over on the socials. We are called The Stickarounds and Harborcoat. Just uh, a bit of uh, housekeeping. If you are in the Atlanta, Georgia, or Athens, Georgia area, and you might be interested in hosting a house show, come check us out. Let 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 me talk to you. Uh, I'd love to make this happen if you're interested. Ditto for anyone in Nashville or Memphis, Louisville, and Indianapolis. You are all on my list. I am trying to find my way back home from the American South. Help me out, brothers and sisters. I sure would appreciate it. So again, I want to thank you for letting me try something new this week. I promise I'll be back next week with a regular conversation. My hope is that we can find a way to do both of these things regularly, that I won't have to take a break from doing a conversation podcast to be able to spend some time and work on this. I'm hoping to kind of find a way to be able to do these once in a while, whether they're just audio or they're just audio versions of stuff that's been written for the blog. I'm not sure yet. I'd love to get your feedback. So please let me know what you think. Get involved. I want to hear from you. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for paying attention. Thank you so much for your support and encouragement. I really, really hope you enjoy this. 
Here we go. Without further ado, here is uh, an audio production produced by me and my friend, Dr. Barry Hummel. This is Next Stop Adulthood. Before my mom dropped me off at the Greyhound Depot in downtown Lansing on a warm summer morning in 1986, I had only ever seen the inside of a bus station on TV and in the movies. During the drive to the station, my mind fluttered between two diametrically opposed images. The positive side of my brain took the golden age of Hollywood approach. The interior of the place was dimly lit, but filled with ornate wood interiors. There was a beautiful marbled floor on which the high heels of well-to-do society women tapped in counterpoint to the call of a faceless voice over the PA shouting out exotic destinations like Chicago, Detroit, or New York. I could even see myself sitting with the businessmen in those large high-backed wooden chairs padded with crimson leather seats as they had their shoes shined and read their morning editions. It seemed perfectly reasonable to my 14-year-old mind that young couples and attractive single young women might even occupy several of the seats on this, my very first bus ride. There seemed a slight, if reasonable, possibility that my trip might be exciting, even vaguely elegant. Maybe this would be an adventure. The more dramatic and sinister portion of my brain, which had been entrenched deep within my noggin since I can long remember, imagined a much more decrepit and dank place. The lighting was still dim, but instead of adding an allure of mystery and elegance to the place, it just seemed frightening and dirty. I imagined hobos, a word I had only ever heard used by other people, sleeping and panhandling about on grimy benches, using napkins as blankets, smelling of body odor and regurgitated booze. In my adolescent years, I had only a vague understanding of what booze actually smelled like. But somehow, at that moment, I could perfectly envision the powerful stench of hobo vomit, like it was a trademark of some other flavor of repellent variety of scratch-and-sniff sticker that I probably would have had posted on the outside of my trapper keeper. The swirling malaise of disgusting imagery overtook the high-class version I had just dreamt of. I was soon filled with a warm air of light fear, mild panic and a chaotic flurry of expectations that left me reeling. I was unable to make any clear sense of it at all, so I just went along with the flow. My folks had decided that they needed to take a road trip together, just the two of them. They told us that they were going to drive down to spend some time in Nashville and Memphis together. Now, when I say they told us, I mean my parents told me and my sister about the trip. At that moment in time, I was nothing more than a confused and awkward 14-year-old boy. My sister Emily was just six at the time. It's fairly safe to say that my sister and I took the news differently. This was a spot in our upbringing where our vast age difference probably factored in more than I had realized at the time. Emily would be going to stay for the week with our grandparents at the family farm. That's not a euphemism for getting rid of my sister, although I did dream about that from time to time when she was especially irritating. 
Grandma Jean and Grandpa Everett had a small farm about 30 minutes from our house that was, at least to me at the time, in the middle of nowhere. I loved going to the farm. I was terrible at showing it outwardly because I was a 14-year-old doofus with no sense of self or direction who was far too preoccupied with moping and brooding about to accurately convey my inner enthusiasm. The farm was a place where I could get lost, and getting lost felt good, or at least better than whatever the other options were. There was a forest beyond the hayfield where we could run and explore. Grandpa's shop was a chaotic mess of ancient tools. My most vivid memory of that tetanus-infested rust swamp involves a welding rig that scared the absolute shit out of me. There was an abandoned chicken coop to crawl through next to the shop. It was falling down. It smelled weird. Animals hid in it or lived in it. It was awesome. Sweetening the deal even further, my grandparents had built a new house directly next to their much older two-story farmhouse. Upon moving their necessary and newer possessions from the old house to the new, a large inventory of unused and left-behind items remained in that old house. That meant there were strange, magical, odd, weird, wonderful things in there. And we could just go check it out. Oh, and there was always a dog, almost, always. Sometimes more than one dog. I mean, did Huck Finn draw this shit up specifically for other rambunctious misfits such as myself? We've got fresh air, the woods, an old house to sift through, a chicken coop to explore. And even with all that, if I got bored, I could always resort to baseball and board games and the Hardy Boys. Did I mention the dog? But alas, I would not be spending my week with my sister at the farm. For some reason, which I cannot recall to this day, it was decided that I would take the bus from Lansing up north to the town of Cadillac, Michigan, to stay with my paternal grandfather. I got along with Papa fairly well, and he seemed to enjoy my company, so the thought of spending a few days with him wasn't really that bad at all. Looking back, though, I am still deeply puzzled by the idea of the bus trip. Were my parents just too lazy to drive me up north? Did they think I needed to be a little more world-weary? And so they just tossed me on a greyhound to see what happened to kids that don't do their homework and never get to college? Did my dad not want the hassle of having to interact with his old man, with whom I would later learn he had a tenuous but continuing relationship? They obviously felt perfectly comfortable subjecting me to the unknown quantities of a 120-mile bus trip at the tender age of 14. But apparently, asking me to chaperone a six-year-old was crossing their moral gauntlet. It was almost as if they felt, well, hey, either the boy will handle it or he won't. And if it all goes to hell, at least we'll still have Emily. My grandmother used to joke the kids were like pancakes. You always throw the first one out. Perhaps I had misread that ethos as humor, and not as the Darwin-esque survival hazing for the eldest child in each family that it appeared to quickly be becoming. 
I fought off the nicotine and boost-soaked images in my head of the homeless and indigent citizens of Lansing and just hoped that somehow I'd end up on the same bus as the elegant society ladies and sharp-dressed businessmen in the tiny, optimistic corners of my brain. Upon arrival at the station, my mother parked the car. We grabbed my small suitcase from the trunk and headed inside through the main entrance. Immediately, I was overcome with a dizzying sense of deja vu. The tableau in front of me looked almost identical to the grisly and apocalyptic vision which I had been fighting off in my brain for the previous 15 minutes. The smell was an overwhelming, aromatic amalgamation of gasoline exhaust fumes and stale post office. You know, that smell of American Depression-era buildings that seem musty, historic, and terribly outdated. In addition to that, there was also the stench of cigarettes and a faint wisp of loneliness. Just as I had imagined, shabbily dressed men slept on benches using newspapers to block out the light over their faces. My untrained teenage eye was unsure if they were actual hobos or not, but either way, I kept my distance. The glass of the ticket booth was covered in a thick film that reminded me of the fake snow spray paint that our family used to use on our windows at the holidays. It was all designed to lend an air of festivity to our house. But in these foreboding environs, the same sort of effect left an illusion of decay. Christmas wasn't supposed to feel scuzzy. It was morning, but not terribly early, so the station was fairly busy. Quite quickly, I began to realize that virtually every traveler there was to embark upon his or her respective journey all alone. Bus travel, unless it is of the charter variety, is almost always a solitary pursuit. Very few couples or families in this day and age, or frankly, even in the summer of 1986 when our story takes place, decide they're going to go Greyhound. Most families can gain access to an uncomfortable and long car ride by walking to the vehicle in their garage, and that will also save them the trouble of having to share it with strangers that may or may not have left a frozen head behind in their freezer. When they called for my bus, my mother began to make her getaway. She gave me a hug, made sure I had a bit of money for the trip, and then bid me adieu. As I walked across the parking lot with my fellow passengers, I took solace in the fact that I had a Sony Walkman, a few tapes some headphones, some magazines, and a book. Today, I still travel with the 21st century equivalent of almost all of these things. At 14, I was just looking for ways to relieve the boredom of a long bus ride. The unexpected benefit was that some of these portable diversions would also help me to keep to myself and provide some small sort of social wall between me and my busmates. After a series of brief stops at any number of tiny little bergs along our route, our bus stopped at a family-style restaurant where we were told that we had 30 minutes to use the restroom and to get something to eat. We had been in the bus a little more than 90 minutes or so, but it felt to me and my ass as though I had been forced to sit through three consecutive screenings of Gone with the Wind. There was at least another hour or more before I got to Cadillac. The vast majority of the people on my bus made a beeline for the bathrooms, and although I had to go with a deadly urgency, I tightened up and held nature's call to instead head for the food and to wait to use the bathroom in solitude. There was a certain kind of sadness in the do-no-harm industry of family restaurants, or, as my wife and I pronounce it, restaurant. The idea seems to be that there are places where one can come for non-confrontational comfort food and just get fed. That idea on its own is perfectly fine, but more often than not, this leads to bland, monochromatic plates that 
vaguely resemble food. These establishments almost always carry the faint aroma of a hospital cafeteria and often leave the diner wondering how hard the chef had to work to fuck up a grilled cheese sandwich. This, my friends, was one such place. During the mid-1980s in my neck of the woods, we had yet to be inundated by Applebee's, TGI Fridays, or Ruby Tuesdays. I would have choked a stranger with my canvas belt to get one of those options, instead of this Ma Kettle mess I was eating in a fluorescent-lighted dining room just off of the interstate. For the record, potatoes in any form should never have a gray hue to them. After I managed to force most of my lunch down, I went to use the can. Yes, even as a 14-year-old boy, I used that term. The male role models in my life often seem to use alternate terms for the bathroom, and it sounded cool. Bathroom. Shitter. Can. Head. Coop. There was a raft of others, too. I thought they sounded funny. Made me feel more adult when I used them. Thankfully, when I got there, the restroom was empty. And so I slid into an empty stall, locked the door, and sat down to attend to my business. I was intent and deliberate and in a hurry for the fear of two possible negative outcomes. One, I would be in mid-grumpy when somebody came into the restroom and they would hear me. I have no idea what I worried about would happen, but the fear of being smelled, seen, heard, or watched freaked the hell out of me. And so I wanted to get this over right away. Two, I would become so wrapped up in my own pursuit to get things done in a timely fashion that I would somehow miss the call to get back to the bus in time. And I thought of how proud it would make my dad to get that phone call. Hi, Dad. Uh, it, yeah, it's Matt. I'm in Claire. Uh, the bus left because I was taking a crap. Can somebody come and get me? I mean, they put me on a bus to avoid that inconvenience, right? Did they also need to know they had a son who was so dense and bereft of time management skills that he missed his bus call while he was shitting? Oh, so proud of their little genius that they must have been. With my business finished up and hands washed, I headed back out to the bus in a hurry to make sure I have plenty of time to find my original seat. As I slumped up the steps, the driver was filling out a log on a clipboard, and a haggard-looking dude lay slumped over two seats near the front of the bus in what appeared to be a sleeping position, sure to require an overdose of Doan's back pills later in the day. The other passengers still remained inside, and I had managed to avoid the embarrassment of living out the new Hardy Boys mystery, The Case of the Missing Teenage Dumper. I settled in, and I watched the passengers get back on the bus and file past me with dead eyes and stomachs loaded down with substandard fare. It was hard for me not to project little dramas on these people as they walked through my field of vision and into my life at that moment. After all, I was just about 14 and almost ready to head to high school. There was no experience in my life to clue me into the shitty little disappointments that can string together for a person as they create a life they're often unhappy with. I just saw the young girl who was far too young and innocent looking to be pregnant. She was probably 19 or so, but at that moment she looked more like she was my own age, and we both knew she was screwed. I didn't know much, but I knew that. There was a guy that I felt sure was an ex-con on his first ride back home. It became so easy to imagine him coming home to his mother, to his first home-cooked meal in years, to his old stomping grounds, and eventually to his bad habits. He looked used, tired, and maybe a little touched in the head. He was three rows behind me, and I had just defined his entire existence in my brain by glancing at him for all of seven seconds while he walked down the aisle of a bus in northern Michigan. In all likelihood, he probably dreamt up some alternate reality for me, too. 
Maybe to him I was a scrawny, spoiled brat runaway or some bullshit Holden Caulfield copycat. Certainly it was something more interesting than just going to Papa's house to spend a few days because my folks were too lazy to drive the Volvo all the way to Cadillac. The rest of the ride passed uninterestingly. My time was occupied by music and a newspaper. The Cadillac bus station must be the most boring place on the planet because nothing about it sticks with me to this day. Perhaps my eyesight was faulty as a side effect of a tainted grilled cheese. Papa was there to pick me up, and he drove me home with mundane questions about my trip, but I was hungry and tired, and I wanted to stop riding in vehicles. Dinner was half prepared by the time I arrived. Condiments and accoutrements were splayed across the table, and his small house smelled terrific. He said that dinner was in the oven but was going to be a bit. So... I could set myself up in the extra bedroom. This was a new phrase to me, set myself up. I tucked it away in my mental manly phrase book for future use. Carl Carlson was a man who knew his way around the kitchen. He had spent his working life as a butcher and as an eater. By the time I was old enough to appreciate his cooking and his love of food, Papa had incurred some health issues. There were at least two mild heart attacks that I had heard about. He had high blood pressure and always mentioned that he had to be careful about what he ate. Still, there was always copious amounts of delicious food and the accompanying aromas. The only sign of his ill health that I ever noticed was the special salt he used that was designed for heart patients. He still smoked his Kent 100s and ate all the red meat he could handle, but the salt was his way of taking control, I guess. Whatever the case, dinner was great, and I ate until I was very, very full. With dinner done now and the dishes cleaned up, I began to wonder what the hell we were going to do for a week. Fishing seemed like a distinct possibility, and that was cool with me, but that wouldn't fill the week. There was a cache of cassette tapes and 8-tracks that I would love now that I'm in my 40s. But as a teenager, I couldn't give a shit about the Tom T. Hall and Conway Twitty that were in his inventory. Sure, I'd brought a few tapes with me, but not a week's worth. Was there a place in Cadillac we could score some Duran Duran tapes or maybe some Echo and the Bunnymen? I thought to myself, this could be a long, long few days. It was a Thursday night, and there was a repeat of an episode of The Cosby Show at 8 o'clock. Papa seemed interested in the idea. I'd loved the first two seasons, and even owned a couple of Bill Cosby stand-up records. Yes, I know that Bill Cosby has now been revealed as an awful person. In August of 1986, he was America's father, and we all loved him. We were dumb. Papa had never seen The Cosby Show, but he knew about it from his perfunctory scanning of the weekly TV guide. The next several days could be planned soon enough. Right now... There was something good on television, and I knew there would be ice cream for me in the freezer. Just a few minutes into the episode, Papa's phone rang. He stood up and went out to the kitchen to take the call. Almost immediately from my end of the phone, it was obvious that something was wrong, but I didn't really think much of it. Another minute or two in, I was able to surmise that someone that he knew had died. In the asshole mind of a 14-year-old boy, I figured the chances of a man my grandfather's age getting a call like this were pretty good. He knew lots of people his age and even older. Certainly some of them were old enough to die of natural causes. His wife, my grandmother, had died six summers earlier. This was not new to him. Very quickly he became more and more upset and he began to cry. This must have been someone very close to him to shake him up like this. He asked a lot of questions in rapid succession and then seemed confused by every answer. I switched off the television and I stood near the couch facing him on the phone with tears running down his cheeks and anger in his eyes. The call lasted another minute or two. And when he laid the phone in its cradle, he said nothing for a very long time. 
The bewilderment in my own mind prevented me from asking what had happened. Papa turned his head away from me and put his hands to his eyes and he wiped away the wetness. He pulled his hanky from his back pocket, blew his nose and wiped his eyes one more time. Bracing himself with the back of the kitchen chair next to the table, he began to sit down. He looked up at me and nearly sobbing, he said, Your Uncle Chuck just died. I need you to call your dad. My Uncle Chuck and I had never had a lot of time together. He was in the military during my formative years, and I had been told on several occasions that he had served in Vietnam. Immediately, my brain flickered with a vivid image of a Christmas we'd spent together in my grandparents' house many years earlier. Uncle Chuck's face was defined by a pair of black Buddy Holly-style glasses, and I could picture his wry smile as he played with my new toys on the floor. One of my relatives had given me a plastic bow and arrow set. You know, the kind with the arrows that have the rubber cupped tip on the end? And for his part, Uncle Chuck had given me a plastic naval set. Looking back on it now, I am not certain if it was a battleship or a destroyer or what. But it was about a foot and a half long and was designed to hold some of my army men, and I was assured it floats. It immediately took the top spot on the roster of bath toys. And just as I was really enjoying it, my uncle wearing penny loafers, a dark v-neck sweater, and a devilish grin crouched down on the floor, pulled back the bow and arrow and shot the plastic arrow across the floor of the living room and its rubber tip suctioned right to the side of my new vessel, and it topped harmlessly onto its side. Looking back now, the scene oozes political commentary for me, as I, as a child, watched a veteran of the Vietnam War topple an American warship with primitive weapons. But all that mattered then, at that moment, was that I was sure that Uncle Chuck was an awesome dude. Now standing in Papa's living room, he was gone. What the hell had happened? Was this even real? Chuck had been living in California, and I don't remember ever talking with him on the phone or seeing him more than every couple of years or so. In the six years since he had come home from my grandmother's funeral, he had maybe been home once or twice. I knew that he was cutting meat in his old man's footsteps, but other than a scant few details, I realized I knew nothing about him beyond the bone arrow, the Navy ship, and a few memories of photographs. When the phone rang at our house, my mother picked it up. This in and of itself is news in our family as my mother is notorious for her avoidance of the telephone. She'll use it when necessary, but she was always the last to pick it up when it rang, and seemed only to use it really in emergency situations. When she heard my voice, she assumed I was calling to check in. Seems like most mothers would want their young and impressionable child to call and check in, and she probably did, but to my mind, she never insisted upon it, and she would certainly never have called us to check in on me. Maybe this is the Carlson version of kicking the young from the nest. I'm still not really sure after all of these years. The haze of the call remains in my brain more than 30 years later. It seemed as though I were just unable to speak. Words fumbled forth in a stuttered and awkward fashion, and finally she just asked, Matthew, what's wrong? Papa got a phone call that Uncle Chuck is dead. What? Are are you sure? Was I sure? Who knows? I was sure of very little at that moment. I was clearly out of my depth, and I tried like a son of a bitch to put on a brave face and deliver this grim and shocking news to my parents. The moments that followed are now a blur, although I do remember my mother instructing me sternly not to let Papa drive anywhere. That seemed like such an odd thing to worry about. Where would we go that he'd need to drive? 
He had just lost his son. He could hardly sit up straight. It seemed questionable whether or not he could make it to the bathroom. Nevertheless, I promised that I would make him stay at the house. My folks arrived early the following morning. My dad came through the door and gave me a big hug and cried a little bit on my shoulder. There was a moment where it seemed as if I were holding him like the third leg of an end table. Our alliance was wobbly, but for the time being, I managed to keep us upright. The adults went to the funeral home to make arrangements, and I stayed behind in an empty house far away from my own house and the bedroom where I longed to escape. I just sat in the silence and wondered what it was I was supposed to do. Later in the day, my folks mentioned that we needed to go get a suit for me to wear to the funeral. That afternoon looks to my mind's eye now like a slideshow, standing on a small wooden block trying on jackets in the young man's section of the small-town department store on Cadillac's main street. My mother trying her damnedest to be the positive force who's going to get us through this. My father looking like he'd just awoken from a ten-year nap to discover a whole new world he didn't really understand. They took me for pizza in an Italian place down the street. Billy Joel played on the house sound system when we walked in the door. There was flour all over the counter and even some of it on the tables. The pizza was warm and good, and we didn't talk much. I don't know that any of us knew what we were supposed to say or think or do. As a 14-year-old, I assumed they had it all figured out. They were my parents. There was a plan. They were adults, and they knew how to handle it. And I realize now they were making it up as they went along. They sat in cold silence, watching a teenager eat pizza, without him at all understanding the cold and harsh reminder of mortality that now clouded their every breath. Traffic went past the window while we ate, and the rest of the town where my dad and his brother and sister grew up just kept on chugging while our tiny little world had been upended. It was disorienting. I felt removed and apart from the rest of what was happening around me. The thought didn't even occur to me until much later that they had had to ship my uncle's body from California for the service. These sort of logistical issues are beyond the purview of the typical adolescent male. I mean, I'd received some birthday cards in my day and even ordered some records from Columbia House, but my understanding of the parcel system at that time did not extend to the delivery of corpses. Obviously, the issue was discussed around the table with my folks, my aunt, and papa, but it was lost on me. My brain was on overload, and it missed some of the minutiae of the ordeal, I guess. The adults had it taken care of, and the funeral would happen soon enough. On the day of the service, I felt obliged to cry. The only other funeral I had attended was from my grandmother six years earlier. I had cried when I found out that she died, and then I cried again at her burial. At Chuck's service, I just felt bad for everyone else there. Papa was strong, but obviously broken. My parents and my aunt were tearful and still in a state of shock. Because of Chuck's veteran status, there was a military presence at the funeral. Much of his regalia was on display, and there was a flag draped over the closed end of the casket. It was a somber moment in a dismal place with mourning all around, and yet I never felt the urge to cry. At the grave site, I stood behind our family. The pastor said a few things about Chuck, about his shortened life and his service to our country. Some men in uniform walked in unison to a spot on the other side of the burial place and then fired several times into the air. It had never occurred to me that there would be a 21-gun salute. I was aware they were customary at military funerals, but until the first shot was fired, the idea never entered my mind. It shook me. And as two of the men folded the flag with military precision and pomp, there was a deep quiet unlike anything I had ever experienced up to that moment. One of the soldiers brought the flag and laid it in Papa's lap, and he began to weep again. And so did everyone there. But not me. I felt ashamed and heartless. As with nearly all services like these, afterwards there is food. There is almost always too much food. 
And once bellies had been filled, fellowship shared. And after the mourners were gone and the mountains of leftovers salvaged, and the flowers were arranged for delivery to various nursing homes, we drove back to Papa's house. The sun was setting, and the drive was silent, save for the click of a turn signal and the hum of an engine. The next day we packed the car to drive back home. It was decided that we would pick up my little sister on the way, and that my parents' vacation to Tennessee would have to wait for another summer, sometime in the future. As I packed my bag in the back seat, I thought about the bus that I had been so terrified of just a few days earlier. I thought of the solitude and the shitty meal and the strangers that I made up stories of that I had shared space with. I knew that my parents needed me to go home with them, and that made perfect sense to me. But I couldn't help think that the bus ride home might be a lot easier than the two and a half hours of shattering silence that I was surely ahead of me. Before we were even out of the driveway, I put on my headphones, slumped down in my seat and closed my eyes, hoping that home would get here quickly. was never explained to me directly in so many words. I had come to understand during this experience and even in the weeks and months prior that Chuck was a gay man living in San Diego, away from his family where he could be a slightly truer version of himself. But even in a progressive place like San Diego, the 70s and 80s were brutal for men like Chuck. Rampant homophobia, threats of physical violence and discrimination were just a few of the challenges that Chuck and his partner Jim must have faced. And of course, they were also forced to contend with the raging AIDS epidemic. In the year or so after my uncle's sudden death, meaning 1986 or 1987, still in the fever pitch of the outbreak of AIDS, I found a way to politely ask my mother if that was how Uncle Chuck had died. Her response was so genuine and so full of surprise. She said, You're a pretty observant young man. What makes you think that Uncle Chuck would have had AIDS? Reaching very carefully for my words, I managed to haltingly tell my mother that I suspected that my uncle was gay. Therefore... The sudden death of a man in the prime of life who was also gay might bring AIDS into question. Then I reminded her that Chuck had been taking a lot of medication for some health trouble he'd been having. Now, I only knew this because the subject had been talked about quite a bit in the wake of his death. But I also knew that AIDS patients took a lot of meds. Furthermore, we hadn't seen Chuck in years. Maybe he had been sick for a while and we just didn't know. My mother leaned in. She looked me right in the eye. And she said, Matthew, it makes me proud that you've put so much thought into this. This is confusing and hard for all of us because it doesn't make any sense for Uncle Chuck to be gone like this. Yes, your Uncle Chuck was gay, but he did not die of AIDS. My mother was supportive and reassuring in her tone. She had acknowledged my curiosity and my observational skills. She had heard me, and she had told me that my theory was incorrect, but worth considering. What she did not tell me in that moment was that she was certain that Chuck had taken his own life. Would also later find out that Chuck's partner Jim was not even allowed to come to the funeral. Until just very recently, it had never occurred to me that my uncle, Charles Richard Carlson, was just 40 years old when he left us on August 14, 1986. Forty years old. A full decade less than I have already lived. And how much of his 40 years was he allowed to actually be his true self? 
The very likely suicide of my uncle was the first piece of knowledge I obtained in an ever-expanding puzzle of a history of mental illness that appears to run through that side of my family. It is a history that I will never know in full detail, largely because I did not ask the right questions at the right time. Now, the archive, with whatever knowledge and wisdom was there, has disappeared through time. What I do know is that this was a family filled with pain, trauma, love, fear, and hope, as all families are. audio production in podcast form of what am i making and maddie c and his adhd industries thank you so much for listening for being here for your encouragement your kindness and your support again please be sure to keep checking over at what am i making.substack.com i'm putting up regular content one podcast episode a week one big essay a week often more trying to do more things have been full and busy and not altogether bad but challenging and i'll talk more about that soon and we'll have conversations soon and i want to talk to you and i hope you'll engage i hope you'll comment and share and like and subscribe and follow and do all that fun stuff and let me know what you're making what you're thinking about what's going on in your life Wow, with this this uh, this music over the background, this really sounds intense. Like I'm doing some really dark, heavy Tony Robbins style lifting here, huh? Um, by the way, I did the score. Uh, is this a score? I mean, I just basically played around, and it's it's a score, Matt. Give yourself credit. It's a score. Yeah, it's a score. Let's call it a score. I did the music for this. My friend Barry Hummel helped me with the sound effects and the uh, sound design, and. Um, Again, this was based on a story that I wrote called Next Up Adulthood for whatamimaking.substack.com. I hope you'll follow what I'm doing over there. I hope you go check it out. I hope you'll subscribe. Maybe consider making a uh, page description. It means all the world to me. Appreciate all your help. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Be well, my friends. Cheers and love. Maddie C.